Hey, and welcome to Not So Linear, a podcast that's here to help normalize conversation around grief and help you feel less alone in your own journey. I'm your host, Tamsin, and each week I'll be interviewing some amazingly strong people who share their own stories on how they've navigated life after loss. But don't worry, we'll talk plenty about finding happiness, what inspires us and helps us to grow. And whilst none of our journeys are so linear, what we do know is that it's better to get through it together. Hey guys, welcome back. It's already up to episode seven. If you are new, please do give me a follow at TamsinMillard underscore on Instagram and make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss out on any of the episodes that I release, which come out every Friday. So this one is incredibly vulnerable. I talked to Craig, who is from Manchester. He is a veteran from the Afghan war. And it's so important that I let you know now that it could be a triggering episode for some as we talk about his personal battle with attempted suicide, self-harm, feeling guilt, self-destruction, and his struggles with post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I have included some links in the show notes to places where you can get help and resource if you are somebody that has experienced these kind of symptoms before or have a friend or somebody in your family that you are trying to support in these areas. But the reason why I was so interested to get Craig onto my show was because he has gone through such an incredible journey. He is a Millie Award winner who fought in one of the bloodiest battles in Afghanistan, where he lost 10 soldiers within his company and a further 10 to suicide when they returned back home. He encountered serious injuries to his brain, was deafened and visually impaired. So as you can imagine, Craig not only struggled with adjusting back to normal life because his life was totally different, but his environment was too. How could anybody understand what he had just been through and witnessed? So as a result, he attempted suicide three times. His post-traumatic stress disorder and guilt from the war spiralled him into a path of self-destruction. He was doing a lot of drinking, fighting and being involved in the gang scene too. So we talk a lot about how he found it difficult to fight the war on his own mental health and that he knew he needed a focus and a purpose to get his life back on track. One day he was actually offered to participate in the Invictus programme. So if you guys haven't heard of that before, it's something that Prince Harry set up as a way to help veterans recover back from being in battle. So he went out to Chicago and he was able to go and compete in multiple athletic sports. And it was this kind of experience that made him find that passion again, something to be competitive with and give him a purpose to get out of bed every day. He also went and played rugby for the England deaf team and now runs a veterans charity who offers support to ex-military. So if you haven't already given him a follow, I've included his Instagram link in the show notes below. He is somebody that is a true advocate of mental health. And at the end of the episode, I ask him, what is it that you would give advice to to other people? And he says, make sure that you don't hide from your problems. Speak address your issues it is not a weakness to ask for help and to reach out to your friends or your peers or to seek professional help if you really do need it please do remember that craig has been so open and vulnerable so a massive thank you to craig for coming on to not so linear and here is what he had to say
obviously my name's Craig. I'm a former soldier. Um, I joined the army when, in, in theory, when the world was on fire. I joined late 2006. The Iraq war was at probably at its peak and Afghan had been going for a, for a long time, but it was not really the fight that had not really kicked in properly yet. In fact, 2000, summer of 2006 was the first really aggressive fighting tour that the British did in Afghanistan. So I joined at probably the most fiery time, which was probably a strange time to be a soldier, knowing that it wasn't a matter of everything was orientated around trainers and you will deploy once training is done. And, and, and that's pretty much it. I passed into a regiment called the Rifles. At the time, we probably didn't even know it yet, but we were about to become the most used regiment in the, the war on terror. It pretty much snowballed from there. Before my feet hit the ground, we were like back and forth to the Middle East. I was posted to Afghanistan in summer of 2009, which is now renowned in history, so to speak, as the most bloodiest tour of the war. And we were a, a fighting company, so we were pushed forward of the line by about 25 miles and we're in a forward operating base. So the only way I can describe it is it's like you land in the middle and every, it's 360 degrees around you is the enemy. And unfortunately, during that time, it was just a matter of when and if we were going to lose someone and, and it came thick and fast. The fighting came fast and certainly the deaths and casualty rate soared um, during the summer, including myself being wounded. How many guys were in your group that you fought with? So in the battalion, it was three, 400, but in my company, it was 65. And what kind of injuries did you experience in personally yourself? I got, I got blast injuries, so I ended up, I detached my retinas in my eyes completely deafened in one ear, severely deaf in another ear, traumatic brain injury, which ultimately all led to like a percentage of loss to my to my arm. I mean, it's nowhere near as bad as what anyone else was sort of getting. Like our company, like I say, we had 65 of us and we took some severe casualties. Some lads were completely blind for the rest of their life. Some lads lost one limb, some lads lost three limbs. So it, we had lads to get shot and obviously lads get blown up. What age were you when you were during the war at this time? 16 when I joined the army. Um, by the time I was wounded, I was 19, going on 20. So, so very young to be going through those kind of experiences. And was that the same for everybody else in your company? We were quite young. All the, like, it's weird to I see senior lads now, like lads in leadership roles now who uh, I look at them and I think, oh God, he's dead old to be a leader. because when we were young, our section commanders, our platoon sergeants, they were only like 25, 26, some were 22. There was no one old, it was not an old man's game. What was it like at the time, like going through that traumatic experience every single day, waking up and getting up and knowing that you might die that day? I know it sounds like sort of cliche or I never really thought about that. I genuinely didn't, partly because I was fascinated by being a warrior. So I like come from a very, very poor background. So the army was like the root of the estate for me. So for me, there was no greater achievement than being in Afghanistan and doing my job. Like I remember coming off the plane when we landed in Afghanistan, I was walking back and I remember the buzz, like my heart was pounding. And like I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm in Afghanistan, like this is class. So I never really had the fear as such. Probably didn't actually get scared in Afghanistan until about, I'd say the first week of June. So I'd, be, I'd arrived in Afghanistan in April and the first week of June when casualty rates and we'd lost two lads killed and our whole command structure had been wounded then only when i seen them get ripped away did i start getting a fear so i was like a point man so I, you'd have point men teams and you'd lead from at the front so you're often first person come across anything to do enter that so to speak and it was only when we took them casualties that the fear sort of came over and you'd be carrying a carrying like a valon like a metal detector I remember just thinking and praying that none of us stepped out of the line i would put my footprints exactly where l would put his and that was the only time i can generally say that that night patrol was where I probably feared. Up until that point, I don't think I 
I mean, I probably did have fear, but I don't think I did it. Running off adrenaline, aren't you? Like every single step that you take, your person in front or behind you, you could see them die straight away in front of your eyes, which is at the time, it probably seems it's so far from what you can ever imagine that you can't imagine it. Yeah. And I think that's probably where there's like an old saying, like a jokey sort of saying is when you start struggling after the war, it's because you realize you're probably never going to be as cool again. It's surreal. But also I, I probably started to struggle and probably didn't address any of my problems because I just didn't, it was so far away from reality being at war that if I was to turn around and tell someone about it, they would never have a clue how to even picture that situation. So I just kept stunned and just kept everything to myself and hope that the war would just be left behind and unfortunately yeah. never never maybe you could tell us a bit about what it was like as you came to the end of the war what the first couple of weeks when you got home what was that like it was a bizarre so i landed i don't remember much about the day but like we landed at birmingham airport and i remember being carted off what was a normal plane uh, but obviously it was a hospital plane and i remember getting cut like we didn't pull up into like a terminal or anything i was getting carted across the time I can only I only remember it for a second I just seen armed police and then the next thing I remember just seeing a normal hospital and then it was almost like a reunion being in office I knew someone in every sort of other bed space because everyone else had been wounded that was sort of a surreal sort of experience but again I just didn't I didn't acknowledge it and it weren't until I left hospital returned back to Manchester I was still in the army at the time I was just home on leave and I couldn't walk down the street in certain things straight away I was hyper alert to everything I just couldn't get used to anything and a couple of months after that we did a couple of like homecoming parades where you get like freedom of the town and we were in Croydon majority was cheering and I couldn't understand why they'd cheer for what we were doing in Afghanistan someone got spat at and booed and I sort of sympathized with them more than the people cheering with us it's because I was so detached from society at that point and that was probably the start of a really bad downward spiral but I only notice it now since when I when I reflect back on it what was that downward spiral like? Like, What happened to kind of turn you into that? It was dark because I'd just shut out from Afghan. Like, and even still, there's a thousand and one things I'll talk about before I talk about Afghan. It's something that you'll never... Like I was going to, I don't know, I'd be going to sleep and I'd be smelling like the burning or I would see little flashes. And I would, I'd like, I'd not really mourned anyone yet. I'd not really mourned any losses yet. I just felt like I went from such a high to, and like I was a determined person. I, I strongly believed like I was probably unbeatable. But the moment I sort of went from such a high to such a low, I didn't, I realised like I was, I was beaten and I felt like I felt a lot of guilt over everything that had happened in Afghan. I felt guilty because I was wounded and come home. I felt this overwhelming sensation of guilt that all of a sudden it started to add like pressure on so I felt like I couldn't achieve or I couldn't I couldn't feel anything and that still goes on all the way forward today but certainly that initial part I just turned to drink I would drink two three times a week then three three times would turn to four to five times and then I'd just go out and think right well I need that thrill I'm not a particularly hard man but like I, I do have a, an ability to win but I just wanted someone just to outnumber me so to see how I would come off and it just started the violence and the drinking started and then and then all, all of a sudden that just stopped and then I'd be walking over a bridge and it'd be like, why don't you jump off that bridge? And then again, like I still weren't sort of mourning. I knew I'd lost everything because now at this point, I'd lost my career at this point and I didn't have a plan B after the army. Then went into like an empty space. I'd like, I'd been pushing hard to forget the war and try and get over everything and see through it. And then all of a sudden, I'd, it's like I punched through that and now I was just floating and everything was telling me to kill myself. And that was probably the where my personal war started then. So did you have post-traumatic stress disorder? Is that what had happened? I'd been diagnosed with PTSD prior to leaving the military. My command structure had started to recognise stuff in my recovery and 
things like that. So they'd noticed, started to recognise like the drinking, the fighting. At the time, the mental health in the military was absolutely non-existent. It was very not recognised as much as it so sort of is now. I remember my um, officer commanding would have dragged me in the office and was shouting at me because I'd, I'd got too drunk. And I remember walking out of there thinking he's, he's just a jumped up idiot. And realistically, he was trying to rein me in. And I didn't realise that until later down the line. He was, so I, that was when the point where they diagnosed me with PTSD. But then I had that, the, the TBI side of it all where like obviously like the, the trauma to my brain. They were like fighting each other. And then I think that's what sent me into a, a spiral and depression then was I, I didn't know how to mourn or anything, and then I had the, like the urge of suicide, but then also the fear of dying as well. So it was it was strange. How did you get out of that mindset? So it's so powerful the way you explained that you had a war internally, a war on yourself. How did you recognise that you got to the point where you needed to change your life around? I don't think I realised like immediately. I think I got out of the army by twenty thirteen, by the time I recovered and everything, and that's when I started to really get poorly, and then. So I had like a really bad spell of like drinking, fighting, trying to get raised trouble. I'd even like, and then all of a sudden I thought I'd settled, but then I'd had like two attempts on my own life. And I mean, there were very little attempts at that point. And I, but I just had this urge to take my life. Like it was an overwhelming urge that still to this day, I can never understand what led me to that over end. I'd like to say there was a voice in my head or there was something that would that led me down the path because it'd be easier to understand. But then also one afternoon, I went home, knew no one, knew no one was due home. I made a serious attempt to take my life and, and I was at peace. I was not bothered anymore. Like I was probably that morning, I was probably the happiest I've ever been because I knew in the afternoon what I was going to do. And I just took a load of tablets and caught myself and, and I just lay there. I remember just lying there and I, re- I remember the surge of pain, but then the, the, the numbness. And, and I remember slipping. And as I was slipping, I remember thinking, this is it. You, This is this is where it ends. And, and I was happy. But unfortunately, well, not for, unfor- not un- unfortunately at the time, someone came home. That probably set me up then to go, right, well, it's probably about in the process of recovering from a very serious suicide attempt and I, I've not made it anywhere to find. I'd not like squandered anything away. I was, it was only then after all that did I sort of sit down and I, I had to just come to, not come to terms, but I had to come to an agreement with myself of what I was going to do and where is this path going to go? And like, I knew how, like I had, everyone was in my ear saying like, you were this when you were in the army, you were this when you were that. And, and I had to like really dress it back and go, Joe, are you, you are like like that warrior instinct. Like we call ourselves in our regiment is the chosen men. We're designed to be outnumbered and surrounded by the enemy. And nine times out of ten, we'll probably come off on top. And at the time, I just couldn't see back into that life. And and so I was in agreement with myself that I've got two choices: I can fight this head on, or I can just take my own life and make sure it happens next time. Like do it in a more secluded place or whatever. And and that's pretty much started the started me to go and start not getting help because I didn't actually approach anyone for help for a long time, but. I started to put things into place to make my brain again and get me back active again. And that's pretty much how I led, led me down a totally different path. And there's still demons there. There's constantly a fight. I constantly have a fight with myself. I wake up in the morning, dead happy, get a morning coffee and stuff. And then I always, I could end the day of not wanting to be here anymore. And that was something, certainly sport, I've always said sports are very, probably one of the most toxic atmospheres ever to be in, but it's probably the most competitive. And I was offered sport recovery in terms of the Invictus program or going stroke horses. Now, I'm from a council estate, like I've never even seen a horse in my life. So there's definitely, <laughs> there was definitely nothing I could have done for a horse. So that's the path where I went as what I needed at that point was a bit of competitiveness again. And It's about meaning and purpose, wasn't it? You needed to have yeah. something to follow. Yeah. 
in the army, you get up every day and you're training for something, you're pushing for something. And although, yeah, you're this brotherhood, you're still trying to be better than the lad next year. Because if you're better than the lad next year, then when, when he's missing a leg or he's taking his last breath, you can run there, get him and vice versa. Like that's, that, that's, that's what you want. So sport was the perfect place. It gave me a, a meaning and I did, I did reasonably all right. Like in terms of obviously I'd represented team UK on the Invictus program into Chicago and like sort of around the country. And then I'd say played rugby, played for England deaf. I'd done reasonably well, but it still just wasn't enough. And there was still a lot of problems there that needed severely addressing. And I then became probably my guilt of my own success. So then I'd do things to try and destroy it. And it just spiralled. Why do you think you felt guilty about your success? Did you feel guilty for the people that you'd lost and that you were then doing well? Massively. I think when I look back, yeah, I never expected to be where I was or anything. Like I was like a career soldier. Like I wanted that for life. And even still, like if someone said, you can go back in the army tomorrow, I'd drop everything and do it. So when I started this plan, this plan B appeared out of nowhere and it started to become quite successful. And every time I'd do something, I'd think, but they can't do that no more because they're not here. And that guilt and overwhelming guilt would mean that I would then go and jeopardise what I was doing. So it's the first thing I had with a friend who had served, who also had served, was uh, we had like a fitness business. And I purposely just wouldn't get up for our six o'clock client in hope that they would counsel and not like not what work with me anymore. And I did that into every aspect of my life. Though like I would purposely, like we were going for an England camp, and I'd purposely wake up late or I'd try and stay up the night before all night. So then I'd sleep past my alarm the next day and not set off. Just so they didn't pick me or they hated me. I wanted the lads in the team to hate me. I wanted, I never wanted anyone to like me. I think because I lost so much, I didn't want to give anyone because, or I didn't want to achieve anything out of fear of losing it. So I purposely make me lose it. It was like you're in a very self-destructive mode. And I know when we spoke the other day, you said that during the Invictus program, the guys in your company from the war, there was about 12 of them that then went on to commit suicide. Is that correct? Yeah. So lads had obviously tried, like whilst I was in, one of my friends had made a quite a serious attempt and we, we dragged him out of a car that had been hooked up to a hose pipe. And I remember how fragile he was when he just lay on me. And I still, to my head, even though I had my own issues, I still couldn't understand why someone would want to do it. And, I remember being raged at him, but also like, but now he was going to be free. And that's probably where I started to understand it more. And then we started to lose people slowly to suicide. And I never really mourned them. I never really struggled with it. I don't do funerals and I'll send the parents a message and that's that. But that's just my way like of of dealing with sort of death because I've seen that much of it. And I remember feeling like happy for them because they were free from all the demons. They were what every one of us that were still alive wanted to do. And, and when we lost um, I like called Kevin Holt, I was actually, that was probably the hardest one. My phone had gone. Someone had been ringing my phone constantly. And then I was stood talking about sport. I literally was talking about my journey from being wounded in Afghanistan to Invictus and England and everything like that and the Warrior Games, everything. I was talking about the whole thing. Meanwhile, while I was talking that, someone else was, one of my brothers were taking their own life. And that really probably threw me. But that, I needed to not do that sort of anymore for a long time and was that a bit of your own wake-up call to go actually I need to improve my own mental health now it's so painful to see other people doing that yeah and he was like the 11th one of us so I'd ignored how much I was actually struggling and and I think after that they gave me a wake-up call uh, I think it gave me a wake-up call to say right well you're not actually as well as you think you are and you're not 
as good as you think you are, like not in terms of everything else, like I mean, mentally, like I just was not as where I needed to be. And I probably still aren't like, I'm one to admit it now. Like I will say in the shower, uh, probably, probably weekly, sometimes daily. Like, and I have to constantly, like I pay a guy on a retainer for a, to be a head guy, to be there, to be like, look what's going on. And I started to like proper assess aspects of my life. Don't wrong, like up until like a year ago, I was still absolutely trying everything to destroy my life. And this stuff from two, three years ago, that still comes back and haunts me because of mistakes that I'd made. And it, but it did give me a wake up call to sort of go, Joe, what you need to seek help. And, and I did seek professional help, but all them years ago, I think the main help probably came from speaking to my friends. Someone just asked how I am and the poor lad I just offloaded to him. Lucky enough, we're still friends now, so. <laughs> but that's really good, isn't it? When you have people you can really open up to, I think that's the main thing I've learned. You know, before you said how sport really helped you, maybe you could talk to us a bit more about how your sport career progressed and the kind of exciting things that you got to do through that. Yeah, so I remember being sat and I thought, I was sat in this this room in uh, Bath University. Obviously, it's known for Bath University. It's obviously known for like a severe amount of, caliber of athletes that come through there i remember being sat in there and like dabbling with sport and i mean like i was taking it not serious at all i'd done like a triathlon but i was drink, i was i was eating strawberry laces the night before the triathlon like absolutely not a care in the world didn't take it serious nothing and i remember sitting there and i was still not i'd still not accepted the card i'd been dealt probably and i remember being sat there and this guy came up like called dave henson who went on to, to compete in the olympics and he stood there with two of his legs missing and the way he spoke and he'd been blown up in Afghan and the way he spoke, the way he carried himself. And I was like, if he can do it, then like, I'm better than that. Like I, I, I know I can. And, and that pretty much started. And then the next day I sort of kicked straight into trials. It became sport really did take over and it would be a strange routine as I would train. I would get really upset. I feel really down. I'd train, I'd get really, and it, it literally, there was never a point in probably well, November I stopped. To, I stopped sporting November last year, and I don't. I don't remember looking back and seeing a point where I probably wasn't struggling, but it was so compressed because of sport. And so we kicked on in these trials and got like a an email basically saying you've been picked for Team UK and um, to go to Chicago. And I was in Chicago, and I remember I replied to the person. I'm still friends with this person now. A girl called Anna. She was like the team manager at the time, and I remember replying to her saying, "Is this real?" am I actually going? And she replied saying, well, yeah, read the email. And I was like, this is mad. So I remember like... Was that rugby? Um, no, no. So that was for like athletic. It was... I did... I competed in Chicago for like eight different sports uh, for Team UK. So it was like a pretty intense period. I, mean, I don't think I'd preempted how busy it was of a schedule it had been. So in my head, I was like, oh, I'm going to go and see this. I'm going to go and do that. And then when we landed in Chicago, we were met by cameras. The, the plane touched down. As the, as the plane touched down, it was like them fire engines throwing water over the plane. We got welcomed. I was like, this is bizarre. We got off the plane. It was cameras, photographers. Yeah, so I was straight into my first ever interview. Never done an interview in my life. And then I sort of went from that to, all right, well, what we got to do, get a taxi to the hotel. And they were like, no, no, we've got a police escort. For and I was thinking, I'm just a kid off an estate. Like, literally a couple of years ago, I was laying my living room dying and here I am. And it was the most surreal, but out of all the experiences, Chicago was probably the highest. I didn't take any medals home, but 
for me, what it did was it just gave me purpose. So I, I probably struggled after Chicago adjusting back to life, <laughs> yeah. life, life without police escorts and photographers in my face. Uh, obviously, I've been very, very lucky to compete around the world from obviously being in America with Team UK and being in Bulgaria with England rugby and stuff like that. Like, it's not all been good. There's been plenty of low points. Sport, as I said, is the most toxic industry in the world. And there's mega highs and there's horrible lows and that's probably one of the reasons why obviously my body is absolutely battered from being blown up and so sport's probably not the best for me anyway but that's probably one of the reasons when november came i had to sit down and go this can't be for me when i'm consistently having to have injections take more tablets i was i'm not addicted to painkillers because of it but my body physically was couldn't carry on unless i took an injection prior to a game a pain relief injection and stuff and it was having a, a damning effect on my on my mental health when was it that you were playing for England, Death and Sail Sharks? I was with Sail on a, in a project role, obviously leading all their mental health and armed forces stuff. But with England, I finished with England in Bulgaria about a year ago now. Um, and that was, yeah, that was pretty decent. It was, a, it was nice to go to Bulgaria, but the whole travelling thing away to, it was tough to be around a team that, so many has got so many characters it's nothing against the lads that i was with they all deserve to have big characters they're all good players they're all good people but it's a tough environment to be in yeah and for someone who can't share a room with someone because of i, I have nightmares and constant battles with pressure and stuff it just weren't the environment that was good to me and i probably struggled more with the england stuff than i probably did with anything else like Team UK, everyone's in the same boat. Everyone's been wounded or from a military disabled background where England deaf, like, the, yeah, the majority are deaf, but... They've not been through a battle like you have. Yeah, they will never understand trauma. They'll never understand that, actually, before I'll play a game, I'll nail eight painkillers in the changing room, hoping I'll pass out before I go go into that game. Like, they don't understand that, actually, after a game when they're all having a drink and singing, I will go back to the room and cut myself and... And it was very hard for anyone to understand that, let alone very big characters who are doing very well for themselves when I'm sat in the corner of the room, not wanting to do well for myself. So that was a, obviously that was a tough environment to be in. And even when I was doing the project stuff at, at sale, very good in that environment, but it's not the environment I need to be in. Like You mentioned quite a few times how this occurred, how you were very self-destructive, you wanted things to go wrong. Would you say you changed now? There's times now where I'll revisit that old Craig I think February last year was a real, I'm not doing this no more to be a bad, to not be successful. I'm d- doing this because I want to be a bad person. And I remember I got on an early morning flight. I was like, we've got, we've got to get away. So we got on this early morning flight to Italy and we were going to Rome. And I remember thinking, playing like, by Sunday, I can't touch back in England and, and go back to who I was. It's not even, it's hard. I've never like pro- sort of proper spoke about the 12 months sort of before 2020. And I was like doing anything to mess my own life up. I was like trying to dabble in gangs, for example. And obviously, like, I've got older brothers who are very much on that gang scene. So it was very easy for me to get to get into. And I was like trying to do that, not because I wanted to be a gangster. I wanted someone to shoot me dead. You wanted to feel part of something like in the army. You were in a team, in a gang. It's the same. You have a purpose. Yeah. And I think that's something I really sort of struggled with. And I'm lucky that I had the right people around me at the right time where I probably didn't dabble too much in. Like, I mean, I'd had a couple of conversations with people or I've not really gone full in, but bear in mind, like, the job I was doing at the time, there's no way I should have been around that. I was lo- You're probably right, I was looking for that sort of 
purpose, but I sort of got on that plane to Italy and I, when I came back, I was like, I need to readdress everything. Right down to, I've still got the numbers. There's still numbers in my phone of people who are no longer alive. Right down to deleting them numbers. And then the pandemic hit and that was probably a really hard thing to deal with. But I just, I come straight off social media, started to go through some really like intense therapy. Uh, like split my time from a very secluded area in Blackpool and my house now. And uh, Not to find myself, but I needed to cut off the person I was becoming. It was rough the 12 months before the pandemic was probably the worst it's been. It's because I was consciously knew what I was doing. I was involved in a car accident coming back from a work thing once. I remember telling the story of, oh yeah, the person, like I could see they were, they were breaking. So I, all they, were, they were driving right, so I sped down, but I didn't. I sped up. I sped up to purposely go into the car and it's yeah. just because I'd not sort of grieved where I've now spent longer on the last 12 months about it been dark but I've started to understand why I took the lies I've started to grieve about it like just in a personal way I think I built a project in the last 12 months solely based around the loneliness of being a soldier and I think that probably helped me mourn the lads that I've lost because I've not come across a soldier who's lost as much as I've lost and that helps me it's because I like being the person that no one needs I don't want to be understood but I want to be able to help someone else because if I'm going through what I'm going through then I can definitely help someone that's going through what they're going through. Could you tell us a bit more about the project you're working on now and, and what that involves? So we basically had a cafe and we weren't doing much with it and then we got given like £70,000 worth of funding by the government to work with veterans and blue light services. There's a lot of people now who are coming out the who were struggling with exactly what I was struggling with. There's a lot of gambling, a lot of people getting involved with gangs and a lot of people looking for a purpose. And obviously at the minute, well, there's no sport going on. There's there's nothing to feel like they're belonging. So we've got to do something. So we basically used the pandemic in a way. We started it off by, if you need someone to talk, we'll have a Zoom once a week. Then that became a, a conversation with a person. Then it, the ones that could volunteer or that weren't shielding during the pandemic, we would get them out delivering parcels. We're averaging 212 food packages a week between a bunch of veterans, and each veteran have done questionnaires throughout the whole process of how they're feeling less lonely, and they've now got a different sense of purpose. Now, a lot of these, the higher percentage of these soldiers come from the post-9-11 era. All the ones who are like me, who joined the army or the military when the world was on fire and then got lost after it. So to sort of see their progress now where they're not integrating into that criminal system or they're not wanting to take their own life, they're actually feeling a bit more purpose. Certainly for me, sat at the opposite end of writing the stats, so to speak, of nice to sort of see. What's your project called? Well, we're, we're going under the Veterans Garage Military Charity. I had to look on my cup then to remember what it was actually called. But it's obviously um, it's something that's been around for a while. I've always had a hand in it, even when I was like involved in sport and uh, and stuff like that and, and, and other charities. But I've always tried to keep a distance because there's only so much you can take on when you've got demons. And then sort of end of 2019, we started to really ramp it up and got funded, basically. And then the aim is to obviously make it self-sufficient. So the cafe will feed the charity and the charity will run without actually needing any funding. It's also presented quite a lot of job opportunities as well for the veterans coming through. So you've talked a lot about how you've had many demons and, and a lot of stuff that's been so hard on your mental health. Are you excited for the person that you're now becoming? Mm, scares me quite a bit. It's partly because I'm well aware that I've not been a good person in the last two years. And like I said, these, these problems which arise from 2019, 2018, that rear the red now, I'm still putting out fires from the person I was. And, 
and as I'm putting them fires out and then overcooking myself here and every now and then I'll I, like I still struggle with sleep I still struggle with massive eating and my training and I still like struggle with the day-to-day dealing and managing of my mental health I'd say it's more on than it is off but there's still times where I can't get out of bed and as what I sort of understand the process a bit better I understand what I have to do and yeah. I know I know this is a big we should have done that all the time but I take my tablets now I'm not scared of taking tablets like I don't take painkillers anymore I don't unless unless my head obviously having a traumatic brain injury you're always going to have to take some form of pain relief but I won't just take them out of nerves now or I won't take it to numb any pain and I'll address the pain straight on with a conversation now I'll speak to someone rather than going into a dark corner and, and I think I've, I understand really well now that actually it's, it's all right to struggle I've been through a lot there's probably not a person in the world that would go through what I've gone through and come back come out of it the other side normal and yeah you've had a really big journey and like you say no one can really understand it unless we've been there what would you say would be helpful to others there must be other soldiers out there who will be in that position that you were a few years ago or just people going through a really bad patch of mental health what advice would you give them now if they were listening to you right now don't hide I did a lot of hiding with jobs trying to I'd become successful and then not become successful. So I hid and I hid in them roles to hide from my own problems and speak. The power of coffee is amazing. Like if you, all it takes is a coffee and a walk and life seems to feel better after it. And I just, that's, that's the biggest thing. Don't hide, drink coffee and you'd be surprised what it can do. <laughs> Love it. That should be a meme. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is there anything else you want to leave with our listeners before we wrap up? No, thanks for having me. It's, Nice to catch up on opposite sides of the world. Thank you so much for listening to the Not So Linear podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review across Apple, Spotify or Google podcasts. Thank you.